All right, well, let's go ahead and get started here. Let's go ahead and get started. Let me pray for us, and we will um, do a brief recap and uh, continue moving through our series here. God, we're thankful to um, be able to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ as an outpost of the kingdom of God on earth. And we pray that uh, you would give our uh, minds focus, that we'd have open hearts um, to listen and to receive your word this morning, that we could be transformed in some small degree because of it as we listen to the gospel, as we understand about the DNA of the church, your bride, and as we seek to encourage one another. So be with us, please, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, first, I want to start off by apologizing. I, I made a careless comment last time that I just want to apologize for. When I was talking about Phoebe uh, in Romans 16, I made a comment about her, you know, the, there's a debate about whether she was a servant or a deaconess being an official office. And I was like, who cares? Um, which, which I, what I had in the back of my mind was a very specific little um, in-house debate that I'm just tired of hearing that doesn't have to do with the question of even uh, officers. But So I want to apologize because who cares? It could suggest that I had a low view of God's word or didn't think that officers of the church was important or that women or something. So it's a very bad look. Please forgive me for that. You should care. We should care about what's going on in Romans chapter 16 and that she was the deaconess of the church at Sincrea. Figuring out what that means. Uh, there are some other things behind that in the contemporary debate that I think are um, that you probably that I don't think you should care about. But that's not what I said. That's what I was thinking, but it's not what I said. So I'll set the record straight, and I do apologize for that. Okay, so uh, what I did last time was I gave an argument for minimalism, um, and, and and with I'm going to just briefly recap it. But but what is um, when I say minimalism, what is that? Who remembers? What did I make a case for? What did I make a case for when we're talking about minimalism? Anybody? It was that compelling that no one remembers? Excellent. This is exactly what I aim for. The minimalism um, is an understanding of church membership from the Scripture. Okay, It started off with a bare-bones argument. That biblical exhortations and expectations that require an organized corporate body to fulfill imply that Christians should be part of such a body in order to fulfill them. The idea that there are commands and exhortations and ex expectations that you can't carry out or fulfill as an individual Christian. And therefore, unless you're just going to not obey those parts of the Bible, you, you need to be part of a group in order to obey those parts. And then what are the four, what are the four arguments or the four um, kind of it's a, it's a cumulative case for uh, minimalism. And remember we said minimalism isn't the um, arguing for a minimal importance of membership. It's just a, a minimal understanding of structures, formalities, processes, name tags, classes, membership, those kinds of formalities I don't think you can get from the New Testament, but you can get a core 
fundamental argument for church membership for these four things. Number one, we're told that believers are, and and I'm I'm just going to, I'm not going to argue these like we did last time and turn to all the texts. I'm just going to recap them because it's going to be important for what we talk about today, church discipline. Um, So believers are expected to regularly gather with a group of other believers in the name of Christ for gospel exhortation and encouragement. The author of Hebrews says, do not um, forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. There's no such thing as just a lone ranger Christian in the pages of the New Testament. That's just not a thing. That's not an expectation. There's an expectation that you're regularly gathering together with a group of believers. Number two, there's a regular expectation that believers are known and accountable to such a regular gathering and are perceived by others as belonging to that regular gathering. So they are known, they understand that they are accountable to the people at this particular gathering, and other people, when they look at them, have a sense of, yes, they're, they're with us, they're one of us, they belong to us. There's a sense of belonging. In other words, it's not someone saying, yes, yes, I belong, and everyone's like, no, actually you don't. And someone just kind of forces their way in or something like that. There is an acceptance of that person belonging, and, and even responsibilities that we have towards them. I laid out a couple of examples of that last time. Um, Christians are to be under the authority of church leaders and submit to that authority. And so the first two points, you could say, well, how about I just do my um, my parachurch organization? When I was in college, I was involved with navigators. Uh, we had a, 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 I don't remember what nav night was, but anyways, it's one of the, you know, we met together and we sang some songs and there was a sermon and it was like a light version of a church service kind of a thing, you know. Um, but but it didn't have the authority structure or the it didn't have the polity that I said transforms those kinds of gathering into a church. There were no Lord's Supper, there was no baptism, there was no elders, there was no church discipline. It wasn't organized in that way. And Christians are expected to be under the authority of church leaders and submit to that authority. And that can't, uh, we, we said multiple times that um, that can't refer to every church leader in the whole world because it would be impossible for anyone to submit to every church leader in the whole world. Um, and similarly, you can't gather to the first point. The, re- the, the, the exhortation to gather regularly can't refer to just individual Christians, the universal church, because the universal church cannot gather together. It has to refer to local congregations. And finally, um, Christians are to be the potential object of redemptive church discipline. It's difficult to understand how you could put someone out if there's not a meaningful sense of being in, right? If you're going to remove somebody from the group, it seems to very obviously imply that there's a way to be in the group in order to get to get out of the group, okay? So this is what I'm, this is what I'm calling minimalism here. Um, I told you that on the membership process, there is almost nothing to say biblically except uh, you want to have a process that guards regenerate church membership. Basically, your process needs to do something to make sure that the people who who, who are uh, joining your church are Christians. That's about the that's about it. That's the only thing I think you can get from the scripture. You're 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 because um, you're tasked with guarding the purity of the flock and guarding with remember true confessors and true confession. And so what, that's what you're trying to do in a church membership process, and there's a million different ways to accomplish that. We have our own particular process, but we're not saying that it's any, uh, you know, it's somehow the gold standard or any better or worse than anyone else's. We have process. You've, you've been a part of other churches that have processes. Then I will say that some processes are very bad. I've been a part of some very bad church membership processes that do almost nothing to ensure or even to try to even give 
discern at all whether someone's a Christian. Um, and so I would say that that's, that is certainly suboptimal. But there's not a lot to be said about the actual process here. Um, and before I go on to the function, and this is going to get our segue, any questions about the minimalist understanding of church membership and how you could argue this from the Bible? It's not just a it's not just a fad. It's not just an invention. We're not just copying the Rotary Club. That membership, sense of belonging, not can be confused with someone's name on a piece of paper or a volunteer schedule or this and that, but that membership understood this way um, does in fact come out of the scripture. Any questions about this? Do you feel like if someone said church membership isn't biblical that you would have enough to give some pushback? Yes? Okay. Yes, Hannah. Yes, last Sunday I have all the had all the texts on there. We read them. Yes. Please go back and look at that. So these are the four points with no no supporting scripture, but all the scripture is baked into the last uh, class or whatever. Yes. Okay. All right. So I said um, there there was a function on minimalism of membership. Uh, there's a bunch of other functions you might say membership to track information. One person I've heard people say that this is you know the membership is for the people who are really serious Christians. Where non-membership is for kind of the loafers. Um, there's a, and people understand membership in a variety of ways, but the, the minimalist understanding, and my understanding, I should say, uh, and I believe what this New Testament very clearly teaches is that the function of membership is to clarify who counts, who counts as belonging to a particular local church, and therefore who carries the responsibilities and privileges thereof. I mean, there's something that distinguishes visitors from members, and there's something, you know, when it, when it says that you're gonna ha I'm going to have to give an account as an elder of people whose souls I oversee. That implies some kind of membership. It implies that there is a group of folks who I'm going to have to give an account for, and there's other people who I'm not going to have to give an account for. I'm not going to have to give an account to the whole world or the whole greater Nashville metropolitan area or every visitor who walks through our door. So what is it, right? So membership clarifies who wields the keys here. That's what we're getting at. Who wields the keys here? Who represents um, Christ here? And this is the this is the one I want to talk about a little bit more, because you might ask, uh, you, you might you might say, who cares about who counts exactly? Like who's in? Or who's, I'm using very crude language of who's in and who's out. I'm not trying to be impersonal, but this is the, this is the bottom line. What who who cares? Uh, we've already discussed a few who cares. For example, I care because I need to know who I'm going to give an account for. I definitely care. Um, uh, taking knowing who counts as the church is critical in, for example, the last step of Matthew 18. Take them before the church. Again, that's not take them before the whole world, so who counts? There's got to be something that counts as the church and people who belong to it and then people who don't. Okay, There's a definable group here. Um, knowing who counts is critical for knowing who wields the keys of the kingdom in a particular place. Um, so who has the authority to, in conjunction with the rest of the church, declare right confession and right confessors. We talked about this during congregationalism. Um, talked about all of those, but but I want to give you one more here that's going to be our transition point into church discipline. Um, and I mentioned it. I've said it a couple times out loud, but I haven't actually explained it or argued for it, and so this is what you're going to get now. You're going to get Tyler's argument for this. Um, if you remember in congregationalism, I tried to give a bunch of texts right out of the New Testament, but I also made a biblical theological argument 
um, from Israel and then a new covenant where people would, uh, the spirit would indwell people and that they would have the law written on their hearts and that they would no longer need special teachers um, to, to uh, adjudicate things in the same way. And so what happens is in Israel, you have a people of God clearly defined, marked out by land, geographic place. And you also had uh, certain badges, certain uh, badges of Jewish ethnicity. So you had circumcision primarily, but you also had certain food laws. You had Sabbath observance, um, those kinds of things. And so between the geographical components and some particularly circumcision, it was very clear who represented the people of God. It was very clear who represented um, the people of God, at least uh, in, in some kind of outward sense. Now, certainly you could be circumcised and not be a God-fearer at all, but there was a dimension to, okay, if I want to find God's people, where I'm going to go? I'm going to go to Israel, or if they're dispersed throughout here, I'm going to go try to find the synagogue. The idea, that's, that's the idea. But here's the, here's the thing. Christ comes, he fulfills the law, he is the fulfillment of Israel, and the promises to Israel, I don't have time to explain any of that, we can go watch the biblical framework series and talk about that um, quite a bit, that Christ is the fulfillment of Israel, and he brings a kingdom that in contrast to what people thought he was bringing, he says it's not of this world. Well, that raises an interesting question, though. Well, how do you know who's in the kingdom? I mean, how do you know? Everyone can claim to be in the kingdom, and in fact, many people do, you know, especially in here in Nashville and country music Christianity. Everyone can raise their hand and say, I'm good with Jesus, man. Yeah, well, I'm a Christian. I'm part of the kingdom. Oh, yeah, I'm part of the king. Are you part of the kingdom? We're all part of the kingdom. Um, how does anyone know? But especially how does the world know? It's, don't you hate it when the world critiques some Christian, you see some just absolute train wreck of someone who's a, 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 a maybe pretending to be a pastor, if you could even call him that, or, or just something that's obviously it's so anemically Christian or even not Christian at all, and you're just like, oh, would you please critique some good examples of Christianity instead of like really bobbing for apples in the toilet just to get clicks or something? Like they'll go, you know, they'll go, you're like, I'm not, that person's not even a Christian. They're just saying that they are. That's not even... Um, it's, it's not even uh, legitimate here, but anyone can raise their hand because there isn't a physical land. There isn't physical circumcision. There aren't those things and anyone can claim to be a member of the kingdom. So, uh, but, but as Jonathan Lehman points out, this causes some huge problems. It causes some huge problems because how are you supposed to know who's actually in and who's not? And the answer is, the, th the function here that I'm pointing out is, membership, church membership, wielding the keys. Here's why. So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, in, uh, let's see, in the Gospels, Jesus mentions the, tw the church twice, but just in Matthew alone, he mentions the kingdom 49 times. 49 times. Paul, on the other hand, mentions the kingdom 14 times, but the church 43 times. Jesus tends to talk about the kingdom Paul talks, uh, tends to talk about the church. Why is that? Well, because what I'm suggesting is that churches are local outposts of the kingdom. That's why. It is, churches are the visible expression where, where you can find out who belongs to the kingdom. Um, it's the visible expression of an invisible kingdom. It's a concrete assembly of folks 
um, constituted for a particular purpose with a particular structure, particular purposes and goals that clarifies to the world, but also to other believers in some sense, but certainly to the world um, where the people of God are. So let me give this example here, and I, I think this is a great analogy. I call this the embassy model of church membership, uh, really just the church. And I think it's very helpful. It's going to be helpful when we understand discipline as well. So let's say I go to uh, uh, take a trip to, to uh, England. We're thinking about doing this in the next year or two. And um, I don't have my passport. And so I show up at customs. And this guy, you know, he's a real nice guy. He sees my Alabama T-shirt. I've got a, a Leonard Skinner song playing in my 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 earbuds or whatever. And uh, this guy, I convince this. I mean, I identify as an American very clearly. I profess to be an American. I have fruit that I am an American. This guy is even personally convinced. He's like, oh, yeah, this guy is a total American. Uh, do you think he'll let me through? Why not, though? He's convinced, right? The point is, he, I don't have the authority. I, don't, I cannot authoritatively declare myself to be an American before the nations. I have to have something else. I have to have a stamp. I have to have a passport. What I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to go to the U.S. Embassy, and I'm going to have to get a passport. I, actually, I kind of made that up. Maybe you don't have to actually go to the embassy, but in my, in my version of the story, you've got to go to the U.S. Embassy which is like the local outpost of the United States in a different country, okay, where they can say, oh, yes, you're a part, and then they stamp your legitimacy, and then I can go back to that same dude and say, okay, see, I'm not just testifying to myself here. I actually have a stamp of approval because anyone in here can raise their hand in this airport or wherever at and say they're American, but I've got the passport. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And in a kingdom that's invisible, when anyone can raise their hand, and anyone therefore can get critiqued for living the Christian life poorly, even if they're even not a Christian, and it's maddening to all of us looking in, you, you, there's got to be a way to figure out and discern who belongs and who doesn't. And so um, here's what I'm suggesting, that I want to identify as a Christian. I want to identify as a Christian uh, uh, individually. I want to identify as a Christian to my neighbor. I hope that they will come to believe that I'm a Christian just through my fruit and talking to them about my uh, what I believe and how I, how I seek to love them. All of that's fine and good. I can identify as a Christian just like I can stand there in France and identify as an American. But so can anybody. And so what I'm suggesting is that church membership properly understood when you guard regenerate church membership, which is why that's so important. Not just anyone can raise their hand and join your church just because they want some more friends or something. But, that's, but, but, uh, but when, when you have good church membership, it is your stamp. It is your passport in the kingdom. It says, I'm not just identifying myself as an American um, th that the keys have been wielded over me, okay? People have looked at me, people have looked at my life, my understanding of the gospel, when I thought I was saved, uh, uh, and why I believe I am still saved. I've sat down with elders, people have talked with me, um, I I've, I've articulated these things, and they have taken the rubber stamp and gone, <laughs> right? 
That's what, that's what it is. That's what membership is. You're not a self-appointed Christian. Testify. Remember, I gave you the example, some of y'all were here last time, of the, um, the guy that I uh, took some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu from back in high school, and uh, he was a black belt. Remember I told you this? Yeah, and so like, it found out like seven years later, uh, after we had gone on and trained with a bunch of other people, thankfully. But uh, yeah, that he had just bought a black belt like offline and just tied it around his waist. Now, the thing is, like, even if you're that good, you still can't do that. Even if you were black, even if somehow you were able to develop that kind of skill without actually going into some, you know, that's not how it works. You might have that skill level, but you cannot declare yourself a black belt. That's not how it works. It is something that is declared over you. It is bestowed upon you. And similarly, in church membership, people say, listen, I'm just not claiming to be a Christian in this invisible kingdom uh, by myself like anyone else can do. I've been vetted, I'm, I've been accepted, and I've been approved, and I am constantly being held accountable to that standard um, throughout my membership in a particular church. Okay? So it is a public stamp of approval that someone, when the keys have been wielded over me, because the membership regulates the true confessors and true confession, um, I have something that an individual Christian, despite being a bona fide Christian, I'm not saying it affects their, does not have. Okay? does not have. They can identify as a Christian. They cannot authoritatively declare themselves a Christian to the nations because this part of, they're part of a kingdom that is not of this world, is invisible, and in a sea of folks who could all raise their hand and say, I'm a Christian, people, with mem- who, who are, uh, people who are members have a corporate endorsement um, of their faith. Um, remember, I have this written down here. It says, membership says, after evaluation, we pronounce that you are one of us and can represent God to the world while wielding the keys of the kingdom when we gather. That's what membership says. You belong. You're one of us. We have looked at what you're. We have looked at what you believe. We have looked at, as far as we can tell, um, your fruit, and and we are saying yes, believer, member of the kingdom, stamp, passport. Okay. Um, okay. So I've given four cares here. Let me pause before we shift. This, like I said, is going to be our segue. Any questions about the embassy model of local church? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I, so I'm actually going to teach on baptism, so I'm going to hit time out because I'm going to talk about that explicitly. But it's certain, yeah. But but baptism is certainly going to be a physical, visible entry oath sign, an, an entry right into the into the kingdom. But that happens. What I'm going to argue is should happen in a. I mean, in in um, normatively, normally it should happen in a, in the gathered body, because what I, I understand baptism to be a key wielding exercise because a church is, is looking at somebody and saying, we have, we have seen your fruit. We have seen your understanding of the gospel and we are saying you're one of, you're one of us. And so we are baptizing you, not just in general, but baptizing you into church membership. So we've had people before who wanted to be baptized, but didn't want to become members. And we were like, but we don't have that category. We don't have like the the baptism without membership because that's how we understand. So yeah, so it is related. Pause on that though. And and you can probably see where I would go with it giving my little teaser that I just gave, but we'll return to to that. Really good. The question for the camera was how does baptism fit into that, uh, uh, fit into that model? And you might even say that the, yeah, so the membership is a passport. The baptism 
as your little rubber stamp or something like that, if you want to send it out. All right, uh, yes. Yeah. Correct. Correct. No, not at all. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It certainly does not make somebody a Christian. That's not what I'm saying at all. What it does is it carves you out in a sea of people who could claim Christian faith as part of an invisible kingdom and says, no, you're vetted. You're someone who, who has been evaluated and we affirm you. We affirm your faith. We look to one another in the Lord's Supper and we, as we look to Christ, we say, I affirm your faith. 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 Um, and that's something that an individual Christian just isn't going to have. Yeah. All right, good. Any other questions about the, either the embassy model of the church, that I just local churches, embassies of a far kingdom, um, or the minimalist argument for church membership? Make sense? Yeah? Okay. Right, let's move and talk about church discipline. Um, it is important when we talk about church discipline to understand that church discipline has two distinct sides. And the vast majority of the time, people think of church discipline as Matthew 18 and all of that. But it's just as important to understand the disciplines of the church, um, positive discipline, of the church as well. Um, I, I was looking up discipline, like just because I, I like to look up this dictionary definition of words. And the first half of the of the definition, the Oxford English Dictionary, was the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior. Okay, that's not generally what we think about when we think of discipline, right? We think of some kind of a pun like consequences or something like that. But the idea is that the first kind of discipline in church is formative discipline. You see that word disciple in there? Discipline, disciple, exactly. That's what we're going for. The, 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 the discipline ministry of the church is something that we, we are disciplining ourselves for godliness. That's what Paul tells Timothy. We want to be a church that helps discipline people for godliness. You've probably heard of the spiritual disciplines right? The spiritual disciplines of the, for the Christian life is a, is, a, is a book that goes through the spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting and um, Bible reading and all the rest of it. Um, and so there are, I, won't, I won't turn to all of them right now, but there are a variety of things that uh, are part of the church that contribute toward formative discipline, submission to elders and as appropriate um, to one another, building others up and being built up in Christ right out of that great Ephesians 4 passage, um, in fact, let me actually read that one. That one is of particular note. And he, that is the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or that is the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we are disciplining ourselves for godliness. The church is helping us discipline ourselves for godliness. Then, of course, we have the Word of God, which should permeate everything that we do as a church that is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 
basically in disciplining us or, and here's like the giveaway, discipleship. Discipleship, the disciplining ministry, being disciplined into godliness is the discipleship ministry of the church broadly conceived, broadly conceived, okay? So we have to understand that church discipline, although the second half of what we're going to talk about, and I guess this will be no exception, but generally gets most of the discussion because it's very, it's very un-American. I think that's probably why you have to justify it so much. Um, and it, 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 um, but it's very important to realize that church discipline, the, the formative part of discipline is just as important as the uh, corrective part of discipline. Okay, if you're, you're at a church or they don't have good formative discipline, they're not trying to discipline anyone for godliness. They're maybe just always trying to encourage people or make people feel better or, make, or we're just going to want to have friends or a community. And there is, no, there is no thought to, there is no intentionality with helping discipline people into godliness and make disciples, uh, um, then that's a problem. It's like, it's, you know, then you're, you, you, that would be tantamount to saying, yeah, we don't have that formative discipline in our church. Um, and I don't think anyone wants to say about uh, about their church or a church they're a part of. So any questions about formative discipline, formative discipline in the church? Okay, so let's talk about the second kind, corrective or redemptive church discipline. Protecting the purity of the church by restoration-aimed shaming. You're like, ooh, Tyler, that one kind of cuts right there. Restoration-aimed shaming. That, that, that seems like you're, you're being a little extreme, Tyler. Well, wait, y'all just wait, okay? We're going to read some that exact word in, uh, to, to, to describe what's going on here. But um, one thing that we need to get clear is that the purpose of church discipline is not punitive. It isn't punitive. This is not retributive justice, okay? Um, now, it is true that in 2 Corinthians, Paul does describe it as the punishment inflicted by the majority, but it's not a punitive. He's talking more just a consequence. He's not, we, are not, um, yeah, we are not exacting justice. This is not retributive justice. It's not punitive. I'm not punishing someone like you would punish a criminal for putting them in jail. The goal here is to call someone back to faith. The goal itself is redemption, uh, and then when that when, when when that comes about, and there's a and we're going to talk about what that looks like because sometimes it's just challenging. Um, then that person's no longer under church discipline. Okay, that that that, uh, that is to say that the corrective church discipline has has been effective by the grace of God, and this is why we consider it a grace. Okay, so we're going to get some readers here. We're going to get some readers and. Um, how much time do we have? Let me think how I'm going to do the, how do I do the readers here? Okay. No, um, yeah, we'll do some, we're going to do some readers. All right. Everyone fingers at the ready. Whoever wants to participate in helping read. So I think if, we, if someone reads Matthew 18, 15 through 17 again, everyone's going to have the passage memorized by now because it is, but so we'll have, we'll nevertheless have one person read. You can't take, take talk on church discipline without reading that. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Who's got that? Yes, Tony. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, and then verse 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, and then verse 13. 1 Timothy 1, 20. 1 Timothy 1, 20. Who wants one verse? Ben. Yes, excellent. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. Who wants that? Seth? 
2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. Titus 3, 10 and 11. Titus 3, 10 and 11, Josh. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15, Asher. Okay. Now I want you to notice the overlap of some of the language here in the, in the passages that are more, um, more, I guess, commonly referred to in the church discipline talks. I want you to listen to some of that language because some of that language is going to show up in other passages we're going to read. And initially, you might not think it has anything to do with church discipline, but it does. It does. Okay? All right, so let's all listen very carefully. Uh, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, with a loud voice and a little bit of velocity. Go ahead. Very nice. Excellent. So we had this escalating pattern. Again, we've read this one a lot in our study of congregationalism and wielding the keys. Um, but the idea here is that I am someone is sinning, someone is not repenting, and uh, there is this escalating pattern of one and then a couple, then we're going toward for the church. But that the end is, if they don't listen even to the church, that they are to be put out and they are to be treated as someone who does not belong. That's the idea of that language, and that's why I use the shame language. Because at core, shame, you do not belong. You are a part. Disconnectedness. There is something about you that is bad that means that you do not fit and you do not belong here. That's what, that is, when you break down shame, that's what shame is. Something is broken about me so that I do not, uh, there's something wrong with me. I do not fit. I do not belong. There's disconnectedness. And that's what we're going to see. And we're going to see the actual word shame used in the second Thessalonians three. So, and then what, what it's a treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Okay. People who would have been in that particular context. I mean, the Jews were not fond of either of those tax collectors, national traders, Gentiles. Um, we're not, we're not into the inclusion. I mean, there's still you no, know, we, we don't like the Gentiles. We don't like the nations. And so um, this would be someone who is just not a part, who is not a part of the people of God. You do not belong. I'm sorry. You're not with us. That's the idea of it. Okay? All right. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, and then 13. It is actually reported that there is specialized morality among you in this kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather be born? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And at this present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is pre and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, and that's the that's that verse thirteen that ends that section. So God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you when you are gathered together. Okay, there it's a gathered body. When you're gathered together in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to 
turn this person over to Satan. You're to put them out of the church, not for the not so that they fall apart and go to hell, for the destruction of their what? Flesh. So that their soul can be saved. That's the idea. They're putting it out so as a as a means of grace so they can feel this. They can be sifted. They can they can be disciplined by the Lord. And, and, and again, it does use that language of going, we're, we're going to treat this person as if they belong to the little G, 2 Corinthians 4, God of this age. Okay? We're gonna, we're, we, are, we are reckoning them as such so that we can see the salvation of their soul, so that they will turn, that they will turn from their, turn from their sin. I know I, I, I want to belong. I want to be a part. I continue to identify, and I'm repenting, and I'm turning back. But purge the evil from among you. Okay? The, the message version. Kick them out. That's what that means. They do not belong. They're outside the camp. They don't belong. Okay, 1 Timothy 1.20. This is where you're going to listen to some of the language that you just heard in the first two passages. Um, and you might not initially think this is a church discipline passage, but it is. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry, I do need to say this. You'll notice that the process are different in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, right? Some people said, well, where's the where's Paul's process? Where's Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5? They're just saying, where's like the I go and then a bunch of people go and then this and that? I mean, what, what, what's happening? Well, first of all, Matthew 18 is, is it would be a mistake, certainly in light of texts like this, to understand that it's some wooden, this is some, this is the only way, only process that could ever, that this could, how this could ever come about, church discipline, instead of a template for doing it. But also, um, in 1 Corinthians 5, the skin, the, the, the sin, excuse me, was of such a scandalous nature and the person was unrepentant. That's key. It was an unrepentant, very public, very scandalous sin that essentially everyone already knew about it. It wasn't like one person had to go and be like, everyone already knew about it. And he said that there were people who were celebrating it, like they were shameless about it, like what was going on. So that's why Paul rendered, he said, no, there are some cases where because of how egregious something is, we don't need this long escalation pattern. We've got to guard the purity of the church. This person's got to go. That's the idea. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So that, with that language, um, for, uh, 1 Timothy one twenty, who has that? Oh yeah. Sorry. Can you back up one verse? I'm sorry. I told you 20 and that's where the, what I'm talking about is, but give us a little bit, at least one verse of context or something. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry about that. Okay, excellent. So what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander? They got 1 Corinthians 5. They did. So they're, the destruction, they got handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Okay, that, that's how you have to understand 1 Timothy 1.20. They got 1 Corinthians 5 by Paul. Um, and so if you're, you, need, you have to follow that handing over to Satan, destruction of the flesh, save the soul kind of language. 1 Timothy 1.20 is generally not considered a church discipline, but it is. It's another example of 1 Corinthians 5, where because of the because of the outright and like rank heresy that apparently they were believing or teaching, Paul said, Paul says, no, this is something that it it, it goes now. And y'all all know know about this because they've been teaching all of this. And so apparently Paul says, we got to we were removing this guy there in Ephesus. All right, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7. 
All right, so the pun so now we're talking about a case of church discipline, uh, and, and people wonder, is this the person from 1 Corinthians 5? There's debates that go back and forth. Is the you know 1 Corinthians 5 purge the evil, evil person from among you? And now in 2 Corinthians, they're like, oh, this guy's repentant, or is this a totally different person? Um, it, I don't know how much it matters, but the point is there is someone, there's been a decision made by the majority. Again, read congregation. There's been a decision made. The majority of them have made a decision to put this person out of the church. But this person is repentant. It's the implication here is that this person is repentant, and he's saying, no, 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 when someone's repentant, this person is repentant, okay? Don't just continue to keep him out. Because the whole point is redemption here. The whole point is bringing someone back in. It's not to continue. They, they don't wear the scar, they have to have the scarlet A, you know, the rest of their life in shame outside the camp. They can come back in and that's what we want he says don't 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 keep them outside they'll be overcome with excessive sorrow despair um uh, but no bring them back in so again an example of the majority having pushed someone out but that with an aim towards restoration and redemption after which after repentance they are brought back in all right two more verses real quick titus 3 10 and 11 Okay, so we have a picture here of someone who is in a church, and they're like a professional division causer. They love stirring things up. They love causing controversy. They love causing divisions. Um, they love us versus them. They love doing this. And um, what Paul says is, listen, you're going to talk to that person. You need to warn them. Hey, this is not what this does not represent the unity of the body of Christ. Okay. Oh, I'm just going to keep doing it. Oh, I'm just going to keep doing it. And what does he say? He says, after you've warned that person twice, he's like, don't have anything to do with them. They're warped, sinful, self-condemned, and you can treat them as such. What that is is saying, yeah, you're going to you're going to treat this person like they're not. You're not going to have anything to do with them. You're not going to have them as part of the fellowship. You're not going to treat them like a believer. They're self-condemned, they're sinful, they're warped, uh, and they're not repenting of this division that they are causing. Okay? All right, finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Asher Dasher. Excellent. So did you hear that? You hear that language? If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. Similar to that language we just heard in Titus, right? Have nothing to do with them um, that he may be ashamed. We're trying to get that person to feel the shame. We're looking out. We're saying everyone holds each other to a standard of obedience to walk in holiness in this church. We've got this letter from Paul, and hey, dude, ma'am, you're not doing it. So we go to them, we plead, and they say, no, we're just, not, we're just not going to obey. And Paul says, don't have anything to do with them. They need to feel shame. They need to, be, you know, they need to feel the shame of not belonging, being outside of the camp. But, verse 15, so critical, 
Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So the idea is you're not, you don't have hate in your heart towards the person when you're doing this. You're doing this because you love that person and you want to see them back. You want to see them obey. You do not want them to stay outside the camp. You don't have um, some kind of vindictive spirit towards them and what you're doing. You're not wanting to shame them just to kind of, uh, uh, like we, when we when we trained our dog, I don't know if you can do this more. It's probably not ethical, but like we we were like uh, uh, back when I was a kid, like when it would poop in the house, we take its nose, and like rub it in it. You're not supposed to do that anymore. I don't care. Email me about it. But anyways, uh, but but uh, but apparent that's not what you're doing in this situation. You're not just taking someone and going, oh, see, look how awful this is. You're, you're not. It's not punitive. You're wanting them to feel the shame, though. That's explicitly what he says that he may be ashamed. And the shame is, is designed to be a cleansing shame that says, no, I want, I want to repent, and I want to come back, and I want to obey what Paul has said here. Okay, so that is why I said at the top of the, at the, top of the uh, screen, oh, I didn't advance, of course, y'all are reading, and someone's writing it down, I apologize. Um, that, that, that church discipline protects the purity of the church by restoration aim shaming. Twofold goal. Keeps the church pure, purge the evil from among you. But there is a shame there that is a shame of, of we love you, but because of how you are acting, we cannot credibly affirm your profession of faith. Um, and so we need to reckon you outside the camp. Hopefully your flesh will be destroyed and you will come back, and your soul will repent, and, and, and um, you will be walking in a manner of the kingdom of God, okay? All right, so we need to pause right here. Next time, we're going to talk about how does church discipline work on the embassy model that I've laid out? What exactly, in the language of membership and passports and this and that, what does church discipline do? What does it actually accomplish? How does that work? And uh, we will try to finish that up, and then we'll try to maybe ask some, or I'll try to troubleshoot some what-if questions that people always have. Well, what about the preemptive resigner, the person who resigns their membership right before they get put under discipline? Well, what about the case where, I'll try to give a couple whatabouts so we can see how this works a little bit, okay? Let's pray once more, please. God, thank you for being with us as we discuss these things. Thank you for the just how beautiful the church is. We're thankful for the brothers and sisters here this morning who constitute it. And those who shortly will constitute it, God, we're grateful for your grace. Be with us in our next hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.